Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Uncensored CMO. Now, in this episode, we're going to be talking about who gives a crap. Not the general attitude to life, but actually a brand that is disrupting the market for toilet roll. I know I never thought I'd be talking about toilet roll in quite this level of passion on the podcast, but I'm joined by Emily Craftman. She is the managing director for Who Gives a Crap for UK and Europe. And I want to catch up with her to find out what the brand are doing. Why does purpose matter? Why, why does purpose in toilet roll matter, of, of all things? But what are they doing to completely disrupt the industry? How they establish a brand, D to C, and why they're now going into retail. Now, prior to joining Who Gives a Crap, Emily was also marketing director at Deliveroo. In fact, she was marketing director before most people had even heard of it. Um, of course, we all know what it is now, but actually she was on the journey very early on as that business went through a massive transformation. So I also wanted to find out from her what was the secret to their, their success, particularly from a marketing point of view? There's loads in this episode. I know you're going to love it. Here's my conversation with Emily Craftman. Welcome back, everybody. It's Uncensored CMO. And here I am joined by the managing director of Who Gives a Crap? Hello. Now, you, you must find, how, how are you introduced? You know, like that or what's yes, your... Yes, it does get me into trouble sometimes. So um, I go to the US for work a bit. And last year when I uh, was at Border Control... And they're asking me why I'm there. And then they said, where do you work? And uh-huh. I paused because I realized if I replied, who gives a crap? I was probably going to get arrested. So then had to start with, I work for a toilet paper company and I, it has a funny name, but I promise it's real. Um, and then when I told my team, they're like, yeah, that's just a rite of passage that everyone has to go through. That's like the induction yeah. program. You have to yeah. have your awkward moment with exactly. security. Go, exactly. Come on, let, let's who be honest. Who crap? gives a crap? You yeah. know, that must be. <laughs> you, you've given me a flashback. So. I once got detained by US Border Force and it was really innocent. Like, so I was, um, I was making an advert for a kid's drink and we were, we were, we were filming it in Colombia because apparently there's a, you know, a, an amazing kind of film industry in Colombia. So we could film two ads for about a third of the price of London. And anyway, the, it was a Dutch agency I was working with. So they were flying you know, from uh, Skipper and I was flying from London. And they said, John, would you mind... It, it was it was a kids. It, we were filming these two kids with spacesuits, right? And they were like on Mars or whatever. And they said, John, could you bring um, the two spacesuits out that were kind of tailor made in London, right? In your kit with you. And can you bring? I think I think it was ten thousand dollars of cash because we we're going to pay all the locals in in in. in, in I know. Well, if it was a direct flight, it'd be fine. But I was flying um, via Atlanta to to Bogota. and I didn't even think about it, right? And I'm in in the US security queue, right? Doing that, I've got four hours you know, to get between my plane and the one that was leaving. And do you know what? It genuinely didn't cross my mind until I'm sat there looking at the, like, and they look really serious, don't they? You've got the screens and the... You feel guilty when you're like, I did something. (laughs) So where are you going? I'm going, uh, Columbia. So immediately I'm thinking, oh, okay, all right, that's not, doesn't sound good, okay. And what are you carrying on your person? Oh, two space suits and a bit of cash. <laughs> and they're literally going, you know, do you think I was bored yesterday yeah. type of thing? It was like three and a half hours. Oh, wow. I got detained. I sat in a room with four of them grilling me. Eventually they go, this is so bizarre. It can't that be actually you, cannot, you cannot be like doing anything. So anyway, there's my border force story. Awesome. Um, let's take you back to why, why marketing yeah. in the first place. How yes. do you get into this wonderful world? Yeah, well, I think the truth is somewhere between a very flippant answer and the answer I'd given like my grad scheme interview. So the flippant answer is I had no idea what I wanted to do. I'd always picked subjects that I enjoyed studying. So I did history and politics at uni and I'd spent all my uni summers being a camp counsellor, which I loved, but wasn't a long-term career. And so I kind of ended up going down the grad scheme route by process of elimination of can't do that. Don't want to do this. Don't want to do that. Oh, marketing. That sounds interesting. The actual interview answer was more when I thought about it, 
history and politics is all around like how people think and why they think in the way that they do and why they behave in the way that they do which marketing is fundamentally and also I grew up in a really entrepreneurial kind of environment my dad um, ran his own business my grandpa ran his own business and so I was always interested in kind of the business side of things so it was kind of the process of elimination type side with knowing I wanted to work in business and then trying to figure out functionally what that would be but I had no marketing like education or anything like that so I in some ways fell fell into it after realizing that camp counselor was not a career choice I, I think we're a little bit similar because like, I, I did finance and economics and then I suddenly I, I was trying to work out what function in a business makes the decisions yeah. and basically shapes the future because I, I I started off in accountancy and I kind of realized oh I'm adding up what the, 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 you <laughs> what know other what other people have done yeah. and I suddenly go how do I get to be the one that you know does that makes the change that other people add up sort of thing totally. and then I kind of eventually figure out that's marketing what I love about your career so far I should yes. say so far shouldn't I yeah, is you've done what I wish I'd done which is you've done the corporate stint but you very quickly yeah. realize that actually there's life outside you know corporate headquarters and yeah. there's a whole kind of exciting startup world so yeah. before we get onto that because that's obviously the main thing I want to talk to you about um you were at, well, I was going to say you are in Bev, weren't you, for, mm-hmm. for a number of years and you managed Stella. What do you recall from that time? What, 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 what did that teach you about marketing that puts you in a good stead for today? Yeah, I mean, I think to your point, I did, I think I was about five years in corporate, if we're going to say that, at Nestle and then at InBev. And whilst I realised relatively quickly that that world probably wasn't for me, I'm so glad I started there because the biggest thing I learned working on a brand like Stella, or Stella Artois, I should say, because I learned that very early when I started at Stella <laughs> yeah. Artois, that you call it Stella Artois, You can add Stella. two pounds to a pint yeah, just no, by going Artois, you know, right? it's Stella Artois, yeah. was, was kind of how to do things properly, which again, I say in inverted commas, but I don't think I appreciated how amazing that education is in that kind of FMCG world. So at Nestle... I think it was called Building Brands the Nestle Way, which I don't know, assume still exists in some way or the other. And at InBev, it was the Marketing Excellence Program. And whilst that sounds very like hoity-toity, it actually was just incredibly useful on how you build a brand. So, you know, consumer insight and brand strategy and brand purpose and all of these things and frameworks, which at the time I sometimes found overwhelming. But actually now, when you move into a world which has none of that structure, has been incredibly valuable to me. And then the other thing I always think about is like, both at InBev and at Nestle, is their portfolio businesses. And so you're essentially sitting with your competitors next to you because you're all selling beer. So beer in particular, I think, because it's probably offending lots of people when I say that lots of beers taste quite the same. Yeah. And so how you build that portfolio incrementally so that you're not cannibalizing from each other fundamentally came down to marketing and brand so that you could differentiate them sufficiently that you had different audiences and and different like customers and so on and so coming out of that and looking back I'm like oh that's actually amazing because if you can build Stella Artois next to Budweiser next to Corona as one business then you're really getting those fundamental things right. And now I don't work in a portfolio business in the same way, but I think those principles have been incredibly useful to, to stick with. One of the things I love uh, as well, but you worked on Cellar Artois, Cedar, yeah. uh, if I've got the pronunciation yeah. right. It, it, Cedar not cider. Cedar yeah. not cider, yeah, very yeah. clever because it yeah. gives it some provenance and some je ne sais quoi, all that kind of thing. It, it's one of my favourite uh, innovation case studies for, for a curious reason because when it first launched I was like that ain't gonna work yeah. like honestly what credibility does Stella have going into cider I mean I, I want my cider from a, a unusual orchard in in west country you know that's, that no one's ever heard of kind of thing I thought that's a, an odd move 
It's only actually when I came to work for System 1 and then I suddenly realised that System 1 was using the, the testing on that as a brilliant case study of how to get innovation right. And the fact that it, it I mean, the, the phrase that System 1 were using is 80% familiar and 20% new because they, it brought the Stella brand into a category that at that time was establishing itself, but gave it a little twist, right, with raspberries or fruits. Yeah. And... Um, and actually, I think it's a brilliant case study in in how to innovate. And but but from a you know from someone who's to manage it, how successful was that? And is is there any truth in how I've kind of articulated it? Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I can't take any credit for the launch of Cedar originally because that wasn't when I was working on it. But I think one of the things that was amazing working at Inbev was was innovating within that portfolio. And so with Cedar is exactly as you said. You know, it was we were a beer business. We are predominantly a beer business identifying that opportunity and then this was before my time but I think there were discussions on do you launch an entirely new brand or do you actually put it under underneath another brand and I think the amazing thing with Cedra is that it took all the strengths of the Stella Artois brand and I know it's a it's an interesting brand because it's had its ups and downs in terms of brand perception but like fundamentally is a good quality brand with lots of loyal fans but added as you said that kind of twist and that kind of Belgian provenance and making it cedar not cider and kind of a, having a bit of a knowing wink um, saw it be super successful and leverage the fact that obviously we have the we it's very much not we anymore but they have the relationships with the retailers and and um, neon trade and so on to be able to to drive it so it was super successful I think in the latter years you know other competition catches up so we were not the only brand innovating in fruit cider and you know, lots of other competitors can see where the market was going in terms of consumers wanting sweeter taste palettes and, and things like that. And so it became very noisy. I remember when I was working on it around share of voice from a media perspective and things because lots of people and, and there was a lot of innovation. So it was like raspberry and peach and this and that and like getting the right shelf space and those kind of things. But fundamentally, like to be able to create an entirely new category under a other brand, I think, is a pretty yeah, good, really good, good case study. I, yeah. I also, I think it's a classic case of remembering that you're not the consumer. Because mm. I looked at it having a little bit of experience in, in the drinks business and, and a little bit in beer, going, oh, yeah, that's that's kind of breaking the rules a little bit. Yeah. But from a consumer point of view, they're like, oh, yeah, brand I love. Yeah. Uh, you know, making a category making a category quite simple to understand and making it sound delicious by adding fruit, like yeah. tick, tick, tick. You know, you always that's what hence why you need to do the research to understand whether, you know, whether it's going to work. Now, after that, you did what yeah. I wish I'd done, right? yeah. which is kind of you made the big jump and i think I it is a big jump isn't no, it, it from was, like it kind was. of you know well-established marketing-led organizations with all the academies and support and professionalization now you know you went to Deliveroo, which obviously sat here now go oh yeah Deliveroo, big successful company but when you joined yes it was probably you know you know a handful of people in central london kind it, of deal. yeah but, it, exactly like so what inspired the jump from kind of, I guess, the safety, uh, you know, and relatively early on in your career, yeah. so the safety of, of that professional organisation that you get with InBev to a pretty crazy, I'm guessing a crazy startup yeah. kind of I don't think I knew about what I was to getting strap yourself onto the rocket ship and, you know, head totally. for the skies. Yeah, I mean, I think that, like I said before, that I had, I, I really appreciated the grounding I was getting and the the kind of education and also like the opportunity to work on amazing brands, like to work on Stella Artois and Quality Street and Fruit Pastels so early in my career was amazing. And you also got exposure to, you know, the full marketing mix and PL ownership and all of that kind of stuff that you don't necessarily get in other businesses. But quite early on, I was like, mm, I think I'm not quite sure I fit here. <laughs> Just from a personal perspective, the the corporateness and, and, neither, and both of those businesses are 
are quite different. You can't, in Nestle and Inbev are not culturally the same, but ultimately very well established, huge conglomerates, slow and steady growth with very mature categories. And I just had, without really knowing what I was getting myself into, had an itch of, I want to take more risk. I want to have more responsibility, which isn't necessarily more budget, but like I want to be able to make decisions and they may be bad decisions and we might fail, but I want to feel like I'm not a cog in the wheel. So when you say it didn't fit, can you, do you remember the moment that you went, ah, yeah, I don't fit? Was there like a time or was it just a general feeling? It was kind of a general feeling from, to be totally honest, from like quite early. You know, when I was at Nestle, this, I mean, this sounds ridiculous to be like, I changed my career because I didn't like not wearing jeans, but you know, it was business attire. And now when I look back at every day in the office, I moved to York for the, for the role, which I ended up loving. I definitely, as a Londoner that had went to uni in Nottingham, was probably not as open-minded about moving to York as I should have been at the time. And I just remember probably the best way to describe it from a personal perspective was I was myself. I, you know, I loved the people I worked with at Nestle. I had great bosses. I made great friends, but ultimately felt like I had to kind of dial myself down somewhat in those environments and that I'm by nature a really curious person. I ask lots of questions that can come across as challenging at, at times and realizing that there wasn't necessarily that openness well, not, the, not not purposefully, but just kind of the infrastructure wasn't there to say, like, let's do this totally differently to how we've done it before. You're just kind of in the cycle of, you know, it only took for me three or four or five annual planning cycles to be like, I don't think this is for me career-wise long-term. And so that, I was kind of hungry for something more entrepreneurial. I happened to be a really early consumer of Deliveroo because I lived in Islington, I lived on my own, I'm not a great cook. And so... You know, when I saw the opportunity, it felt like a, a great fit at the time. But as you said, like, Deliveroo really wasn't well known. So when I, I think I told you this earlier, like when I resigned to my boss at the time, he replied, deliver who? And when I saw him years later, he, we he remembered that. Now yeah. going, damn it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he, um, you know, who, it could have been a startup that totally failed. I still think it was probably the right thing for me to do at that moment in my career. Um but definitely ended up being like but that, a rocket that, ship that I hadn't anticipated. And that is, I mean, the difference between, you know, I don't know what your targets in Bev were, but if you grow five or 10%, that's probably in a, a standout year. I assume to a business where doubling is the minimum requirement, you know, just to stand still kind of thing yeah. in, in a category that's exploding. Describe to me what the greatest challenge for you personally going from, you know, a stable environment to, I imagine, quite a hectic, dynamic, constantly changing, challenging environment like that. Definitely. And I mean, I think the first year at Deliveroo was probably the most challenging in my career, just from a like, holy moly, I'll say, what on earth is going on? Because... You know, at that time, then at that point, it was so early in a way that the percentages are crazy, right? There's like a thousand percent because you're going from like barely, barely anything. But I think the biggest shift for me was the the pace. So the irony of like fast moving consumer goods, not necessarily being that fast moving internally in those type of businesses, whereas here we were just a totally different business model and so early. So one of my first roles, part of my responsibility was rider marketing. And I remember my boss at the time saying, take everything you've learned about doing consumer marketing in terms of how you recruit consumers and how you maintain their loyalty and all of those things and apply it to riders cool but it's actually very different and you know got drawn in by the head of rider marketing title and then realized I was the head of me um, and the only person doing it globally so literally figuring out from scratch like what does it mean to do rider marketing who are our target audience what channels are they in 
and literally going from scratch. We didn't have any agency. So like if I wanted to buy media, I was literally phoning up people and saying, can I have a, a you know, an ad in this magazine? And the, the, the pace of that was, you know, if you didn't have enough rider applicants applying to become riders at the beginning of the week, you knew you had a problem servicing demand at the end of the week. And so dealing with that kind of relentlessness and pace and also uncertainty, because we were making it up as we, as we went along, was a lot to, to reckon with. I also loved it, though, like loved it to the point that it was kind of all consuming because you just get such a kick when you then are getting enough rider applicants or then you're seeing the orders tick up and you know we would we were doing restaurant marketing for the first time and being able to say you know you can get wagamama on deliveroo and those kind of things it was kind of addictive in a way that i hadn't had before in my career because you felt like you were really part of it i imagine the feedback loop is super fast isn't yes. it? Like you know you're not having to wait 12 months to see if your brand equity measures have shifted by a percent right if the riders don't turn up on saturday game over yeah. Totally. And, you know, like customer service then is going up. People are, you know, haven't got their orders. Orders are not as high as they could be. You've got the demand. How you start managing, like, marketing spend. So should we, when when and how should we be spending if actually our demand is higher than our supply? And so all of that kind of stuff was was new to all of us, um, but definitely new to me from you know, supply issues weren't something that we really thought about day to day. You knew there was going to be enough Stellar Artois on shelf yeah. most of the time. Um, this was very, very real time. Essentially, you remind me of something. I, I, yeah. I did a little bit of work for uh, Deliveroo with System One. Yeah. It was maybe a couple of years ago. And um, it was quite interesting because one of the benefits of, of our sort of test is it predicts whether it's going to impact on short-term sales, long-term sales. Anyway, they, they called me and said, oh, we've got a bit of a problem. I was like, oh, no, what, what's happened? You know, sort of thing. And they said, well... The trouble is, we, we, we're obviously selling this methodology into the business and they think it's great. But honestly, like we're expecting to double. So how are you going to go? Where, is doubling our sales the next 12 weeks good or bad? How do we know, right? Because the market's doubling anyway. So how do you, and I was like, well, it's relative to your competition, you know, competition and so on. But, you know, it, it is changing so rapidly. It becomes quite challenging to know what, you know, what success is, isn't it, when it's moving that fast? I mean, it was a really nice problem to have, but that definitely was a real problem during that journey of like exponential growth was how much of this is because of the work we're doing in the marketing team how do you spend, yeah, versus how, do you how much and everything else yeah. and we did we did some really really innovative quite innovative stuff where you know it was too soon for us to have a, a full like econometric model because we just didn't have good enough data but we did you know incrementality tests on on performance marketing channels we did you know we first went on tv um, we did regional testing so we could actually see the difference between how things work so that it was definitely not perfect, but at least it gave us some better benchmarks where you could say, actually, like our contribution is is this. But the other thing with Deliveroo and definitely true with Who Gives a Crap as well is our advertising was was great. I, if I do say so myself, but um, it actually was a lot of the other touch points that massively drove awareness. So, you know, riders in really um, standout rider kit window stickers in all of the restaurants those touch points are as impactful if not more in a way because they're really close to that point of connection than you know the tv ads and, and yeah. all of the other stuff no, that, that, that totally comes across i mean yeah it scores very very well on yeah. system one i think kind of three four star average most delivery uh work which is amazing one thing i noticed as well is is, is as, a, as a as a brand the positioning has changed hasn't it so i, I mean when i first 
uh, used Deliveroo, it, it was like having a restaurant delivery kind of thing. That was how, you, how it felt. Now you can kind of get almost anything on it. It was, it was that a conscious response to the market or, or, or how did that change? Yeah, I mean, I think lots of people are familiar with the story of how Deliveroo started, but Will, who's the founder, and he was a banker um, who had been working in New York and he moved over to London and literally the insight was he was working late and he asked colleagues what they were going to get for dinner. And they said like a, a microwave meal. And he was shocked that he couldn't get the, the caliber of food that you could get in New York delivered in London. And so that was really the starting point of wanting to be able to get good restaurant food delivered. As we scale, you know, you want to be able to reach new audiences. And so you want to have the more mainstream restaurants as well. And that was also incredibly powerful to be able to get your kind of favorite high street restaurants delivered for the first time it was like a dream for most consumers and then there was really interesting discussions as we grew around like what does that mean for with fast food restaurants and so on but ultimately if you want to be the definitive food company which is what the delivery kind of vision was that means like having what consumers are looking for in all occasions in all different need states like me as a consumer can want something super premium one night and then want a fast food um, out delivery toilet roll the next day. The right? next day, exactly. <laughs> and so it was less, I think it was an acknowledgement. As we grew and became more mature that if you really want to be that kind of definitive business, you can't be in that super narrow niche. But obviously, like all businesses that scale, same with who gives a crap, as you move away from that like super bullseye target audience or that very kind of niche proposition, how you continue to differentiate yourself as a brand in a more mainstream world is it's like the classic kind of... Um, trade-off that you have to consider now you had uh, five amazing years in your delivery quite something and, and it must be uh, yeah an incredible training ground as well for what you're doing now of course yes. because uh, you know you recently became managing director of who gives a crap let's uh, for anyone out there who yes. you know i love the fact you're still smiling about the introduction so you never get tired of the yeah funny to say that you work in toilet paper and yeah to- exactly the company and has and crap in the yeah, name we have crap in the title yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, do you feel a bit awkward about that does it feel like a bit i mean strange? no or, i, I mean i kind it of love it yeah. it's um you either people the the reaction i either get is either people are like sorry say that one more time or people know the brand and are like oh that's really it's cool. the in joke yeah. and you never thought you know i um I did a careers talk years ago at my old school and this is when I was still very much kind of in the marketing world. I think it was when I was at Deliveroo and I remember talking about choosing brands and industries. At that point, I'd worked in sweets and chocolate, in beer and then in food delivery. And I was like, oh, I'd never work in a boring category or or industry. For example, I'd never work in toilet paper um, because it was just the category that came to mind as like illustrative of something incredibly boring. So the universe obviously has a funny way of um, laughing at us. And now I kind of love that ostensibly toilet paper is super boring because it's in a way it's that that made this role and the what who gives a crap have done before my time that made it so compelling um, I've, I've got a theory about this I, yeah. I, i've long thought that, that i must do this one day rather yeah. than just talk about this but <laughs> i do have this theory of finding the most boring categories yeah. in the world on the basis that everyone thinks like you think yeah i think too right you go oh i'd love to work in chocolate or i'd love to work for an airline i don't you know and and those categories are well overexposed with the world's best marketers right find the dullest category yeah. the most commoditized category where there is no marketing at all and do something interesting you know and and and, and weirdly going back to the system one database as well we find an inverse relationship between how interesting the category is and how good the advertising. So the more interesting interesting the category, like the more feature heavy, like mobile phones or things like that, 
typically the worse the advertising because you tend to, you know, you tend you're to have too the, focused on exactly, the, you're too focused on products, right? Yeah. Oh, we've got so many things to talk about. Yeah. Our new kind of LED headlights. Yeah. You know? um, Whereas if you've got a, uh, let's, let's say a commodity category, I mean, you, you're taking it to the extreme, you have to do brand. Mm. You have to create a brand. You have to stand for something and you have to make entertaining advertising that people can remember because you're not going to talk about, you know, I've got 15 ply, you know, <laughs> <laughs> sort of super soft, you know, kind of toilet roll, whatever. I don't know. Maybe that's an innovation idea, but I don't think so. But, you know, <laughs> so it becomes about the brand, doesn't it? But tell us about the, the backstory because I'm sure people are wondering, like, how on earth did someone decide yeah. to go and innovate in the, you know, toilet roll market? Yes. Who Gives a Crap has been around for just over 10 years. There's three um, founders. They're all still in the business. Simon, who's my boss, is um, the CEO. And he was the face of how the business started because it was actually crowdfunded. So he had this idea. He'd, he'd been working in kind of um, like purpose for or thinking about how you can do business differently and use capitalism to to do good for a while. And he, he kind of was like a... It sounds overly simplified, but had this moment of we should make toilet paper, we should donate half of our profits, and uh, it's all donated to to wash um, initiatives to build clean water and sanitation. And decided that the way to get that off the ground was to sit on a toilet on a live web stream for as long as it took for them to crowdfund $50,000. Turns out it took 50 hours. 50? Yes. And I have grilled him on this when I joined saying like, Really? Did he have Deliveroo really? delivering yeah, him like exactly. food to his toilet? Like, I, I actually haven't did, asked him that he... question, which I should have. Um, but I, I guess in a way, it's that's kind of indicative of how Who Gives a Crap has done things from the beginning, which is like always very tongue in cheek. Like you can, if you Google it, you will see pictures of him on the toilet. It was like a funny moment in my first week when I was doing a presentation and I slacked someone saying, oh, do you have, a, do you have that picture of Simon on the toilet? which is not something you necessarily think you're going to yeah, say about your boss yeah. in the first week of a new job. Um, but it went it went viral, so to, but not so to speak. It actually did. Yeah. And so it got traction in random countries. It was on, like, I think the front page of a big media website in Brazil or something. So it truly went everywhere because it's funny and silly. Um, it was already called Who Gives a Crap at that point. And we crowdfunded the amount to fund that first production and obviously because of that traction there was you know, everyone who had donated and everyone who had seen it and and to be honest like the rest was history from there in terms of how the business then grew it was immediately d to c but it's funny because when we talk about it, it was like d to c at that point so this is like 2012 2013 wasn't it wasn't like a conscious choice to be a d to c brand it was more this is the easiest way for us to ah, start. It wasn't some quickly. genius strategy about was, the future is going to be subscriptions. No, so that's what we're going to exactly. do. It wasn't a thought. It was okay. more, you know, we want to get to consume. We want to make this product. If you think about the alternative would have been to rock up to retailers and start talking to them from, from early days. And I, th and I think, and I can't speak super accurately because it's way before my time, but it was kind of, let's get it out to consumers and, and learn and see how we go. Um, and then obviously just grew from there. And I, one of the great benefits of a D2C business is you obviously have that interaction with cu customers. You're really getting their feedback very live and it's pretty scalable across markets. Um, so, you know, we're, we start in Australia and then we're now in the US, the UK and also in mainland Europe as well. It's funny that it, it, it doesn't obviously stand out as a candidate because you go, it's low value, it's bulky. Yeah. It's an everyday purchase. It's not like a, a luxury purchase. You know, so it, it doesn't obviously put itself out there as, oh, yeah, I'm going to subscribe to Toilet Roll. But obviously it's worked. So it's, what, it's what worked was the secret in... to the subscription bait, you know, working? 
Well, the, well one thing, as you said, was we did, um, I guess, flip it on its head a bit, which is on, on our website, you buy the toilet paper in boxes 24 and 48. Um, so it is in bulk. You know, that really helps from a sustainability perspective as well, because our rolls are double length um, as well. And so, like, the overall footprint of that purchase is as low as possible um, because you're buying it in bulk. And presumably you're reducing the supply chains. You're not delivering it to a, he- a distribution centre, exactly. going out to a regional distribution centre, going to a store, sat in the back for a while. Then exactly. And there's lots of, um, you know... I think one of the things that we talk about a lot is like progress over perfection. So I'm definitely not saying this way is 100% better than that way because you know, we, we also want to be in retail and there's lots of benefits in, in, in both the models. But with everything that we've tried to do, we've always tried to do it kind of to the best of our ability at that time. And what we found is like people love just having one less thing to think about. Um, we we talk a lot about kind of unexpected delight. So you know, that one of the things I think that has made Who Gives a Crap as popular as it is, is because it's made something that's really boring, easy, and also delightful. So you know, there's they're all individually wrapped, which the prime reason for doing that is hygiene because it's in a big box and you know you don't want them to get dusty whilst you're going through them. It's like, well, if you're going to do that, you might as well make it great. And so it means that people like love uh, showing them in their toilet. There's lots of Easter eggs in our kind of tone of voice and, you know, hidden thing. Well, for anyone who's not a customer yet, I'll ruin the surprise. But at the bottom of the the boxes, we have emergency rolls, um, which are wrapped differently and are called emergency rolls. And that's like a, you know, a reminder to them to stock up, which is really fun. And, you know, all of the kind of touch points along the consumer journey from the website copy to the emails to social and everything He's just trying to help people do good in a way that's fun and easy. One of the most genius bits of marketing when I was a kid growing up was you used to get lollies and they'd have a joke on the stick. That once you'd eaten the lolly, then you'd, get, you'd reveal the joke. It's like those little surprise and delight things at the bottom of something is, is brilliant. Yeah, totally. And I think that you know, the causes that we, that we care about, you know, we fundamentally exist to donate our profits and to make a difference in wash and also sustainability. We take those very seriously, but we don't take ourselves seriously. And I think with you know consumers want to make better choices, but they don't want to be shamed into it. They don't want to be guilted into it. You know, like everyone's got enough going on in their lives. They don't need a brand saying you're using the wrong toilet paper in a very lofty way. But if we can make it easy for people to make the switch where they are doing good, but actually it's also fun and delightful. I think that's well, let's talk about the purpose because yeah. I mean, purpose is a hot topic in marketing. It's used and abused in yeah. probably equal measure, isn't it? So um, what what is the impact you're actually having yeah. you know, on good causes in terms of hygiene and sanitation and yeah. water? Yeah, so I mean, one of the reasons why I love our business model is because rather than, than that kind of, and what's the purpose of this you know, coffee cup or whatever and how it's going to help in the world, it just fundamentally everything we sell does good and the two there's two sides to it so there's, there's the profits which we've donated over six million pounds so far to um, various wash causes um, around the world we have a number of partners water aid is kind of probably the biggest and most well well known and then on the sustainability side you can we can literally calculate and it's done based on you know the trees that would have been cut down if the toilet paper we'd sold was was traditional so, so how, how is say, it made then so if it's not made from trees what, no, it's what not, is it made so from? we have two product lines one is bamboo and one is recycled paper. So there, and, and then oh. people people make jokes about it's recycled paper. It's not recycled toilet paper. Um, that recycled paper is kind of old 
school homeworks, old office um, Oh, there's just my question. If only yeah, I knew. Um, and it's actually on, we have that on the retail pack, like so that people understand what it what it is. And for anyone that wants to like geek out on paper, there is like various grades of, you know, where, what different types of recycling goes to. So that it's like office and those kind of stuff like this, basically. And so those are our two product lines. The recycled are the ones that you see in the nice, brightly colored wrappers and the bamboo is the black and white. So yeah, so we can calculate kind of number of trees saved. And so I think as of the last couple of months or so, it's 1.4 million trees that we've saved to date. And obviously as we grow, that becomes kind of exponential because we have incredibly strong retention and loyalty, which is awesome. And so it's it's cool to be able to see, you know, each of those consumers that stays with us is saving more and more trees and same on, on the kind of profitability side. So I think we do really hold ourselves to account on trying to share as much of that stuff as possible. Um, again, the progress over perfection thing comes in where I think it's a really interesting space where lots of brands are talking about these things. You do need to be conscious of if brands are over-egging those things equally. Um, I think it's something that we're super proud of and, and, and try to give as much transparency as we can. Now, you've been growing rapidly, and I think yeah. you recently now listed in Waitrose. We are, right? yes. Ooh, congratulations. Our first so, national ladies retailer. Ladies and gentlemen, Very available exciting. now in Waitrose. Yes. You know. um, that's obviously a new uh, di- distribution channel, I guess, for you. Yeah. What kind of challenges does that give you as a, I guess, going from a D to C now to be in retail as well? I mean, it's been a really interesting journey, and it was probably one of the reasons why I was hired and I built out a team here, which is, you know, you can scale the business when it's primarily D to C without necessarily having people on the ground. But when we're really thinking about that kind of local retailer knowledge and and so on, I think the why was it comes back to our big, hairy, audacious goal is pretty hairy and pretty audacious and recognizing that, um, you know, we love being the biggest toilet paper D2C brand, but the reality is most people aren't buying their toilet paper online. And so kind of the classic physical availability of we want to be where our consumers are it's very different. So like internally, obviously the the majority of the business has been focused on D to C. So like thinking about what processes you need, what capabilities you need, like having a sales team, um, having a pack and proposition that works for retail, because as much as I would have loved to have my big box of 48 rolls on shelf in Waitrose, I don't think we would have got that much um, shelf space. So it was almost starting, well, it was starting from scratch on a number of the fundamentals and figuring out, you know, given that we're not going to, um, control the customer experience in the same way or have as many touch points with them how do you try and bring to life what that brand is all about on you know a second or whatever the latest stat is on how long you have when someone's on um looking at shelf and kind of bringing all of those things to life and and to be honest you know we are very very excited that we've launched in waitrose in in many ways like when i joined getting that retailer listing felt like a huge milestone then when you get there you realize like actually it's the start line not the finish line and so we know it's kind of very beginning of the journey super excited to be working with waitrose and kind of partnering on you know how we grow that eco segment in store and and figuring out as we go you know with packaging for example i'm sure the packaging that's in store today is not necessarily going to be the packaging that's there in five years but really proud of kind of what we've done to start with Amazing. Congratulations. Now, imagine to get to this point as well, you haven't been blessed with big budgets like you might have had if you went back to your ABM web days. So what have you, how have you been able to grow when you've got a lot less resource than, say, the market leader? Yeah. 
in this category. Yeah, and a lot of it comes back to some of the stuff we've already talked about. So, you know, the packaging is very different to most normal toilet paper, and that's that's done a few things. One is the packaging and probably the whole kind of brand in itself, which has meant that we have... I generally don't like when people talk about people loving the brand and brand love and stuff because it's like, they cut, you know, they just... They don't love your brand as much as you think that they do. (laughs) However, we do have a Slack channel called Customer Love Letters, and you'd be surprised. People really do love love the brand. Because of our, like, when I I say brand in terms of the fundamentals of kind of the tone of voice, the purpose, people feel like they are doing good, but they also bring this, like, smidgen of joy because our emails are are funny and those kind of things. That means we have a huge amount of advocacy. So half of our customers have given who gives a crap as a gift which is ridiculous when you pause because yeah. it's toilet paper gift. Wow. Um, that comes from the fact that we have, you know, they're fun because they're wrapped. We also do limited editions, which also sounds silly when you think about it, limited edition toilet paper. But we've done a, you know, a huge array of different um, things. We've done holiday editions. We've done like a Where's Waldo style one. And so, you know, kids love them. People give them as gifts. So all of that kind of stuff has meant that word of mouth, advocacy, gifting, um, has been huge for us. Also, people literally just seeing it in their friends' houses. And then we've also done that kind of a bit more explicitly on the B2B side. So we talk about B2B to B, which is to build brand, an awesome way of just driving more visibility. So hopefully people go into cafes, to restaurants, to hotels, to offices, and they see our brand. And again, because of the wrapping, you know that it's who gives a crap. And when you talk about limited resources, that's super powerful because it's obviously a sales channel, um, but also doing the marketing side as well. I think this is a massively under, under un, misunderstood or underestimated channel is B2B, isn't yeah. it? I think people forget that, well, firstly, that B2B can op- operate similar to B2C and you're building your brand in the same way you might do elsewhere. But also that B2B can help you build your brand overall because you see in the right places you know, you talk to people that might then go on and buy you as well. You know, B2B can be a really powerful channel. Yeah, absolutely. And for Particularly us... Particularly when you've got no budget as well. This is the thing, because exactly. then you, you, can, you leverage other people's budget or you yeah. leverage availability through, you know, through third parties. Yeah, exactly. And um, especially in Australia, which is our most mature market, like it's really fun when you are in Melbourne because you really see the potential of that in a similar way probably to to how people see Deliveroo in London, you know, like a window sticker on every restaurant, that kind of who gives a crap on every toilet. Um, we're not quite there yet in the UK. You're there in, in certain pockets of London. You will see it. You will see it. Um, but I'm the, the the weird but also amazing thing about working in toilet paper is that obviously toilet paper is it's not a category that needs education on what the actual product is or that doesn't have the penetration. Um, but the education on like the problem that we have around deforestation and wash and also the like the opportunity to drive that visibility is kind of endless. And so, yeah, I'm excited about hopefully one day every restaurant in the UK. Right. Is I, I mean, a similar, the brands that you guys remind me of a lot is Tony's Chocolate Only. Yeah. I don't know if you've been to Amsterdam where they are, but that is literally like seeing the future yeah. because like Tony's pops up everywhere kind of thing. And it's just amazing. And, and the packaging again yes, and the novelty and all that kind of thing works really as well. Um, You've also recently had your first TV campaign. Congratulations. Thank you. So it's all very grown up now. Yes, hasn't it, it is. You know, so we're on TV, totally. ladies and gentlemen. How's that gone? Oh, it's, it's been a really interesting journey. And we're going through that classic kind of shift when as a scale up and you know, primarily as a D2C brand that's then scaling both in D2C and also into other channels, the 
traditional D2C startup channels of being really reliant on performance marketing, which is the other side to the word of mouth piece, I guess, in terms of how we scaled, isn't going to be the formula that's going to work for us in the future. And obviously with a marketing background, one of the things I've been super passionate about since I joined was, you know, what, how do we mature and diversify the way that we're approaching marketing? And it is a massive leap to have that conversation of we're not going to be able to measure it in quite the same way of the impact that it has and all of those things. But it's been really exciting. I think one of the, there's been lots of things that we've talked about, one of which is, as we've discussed, we have a really strong brand in terms of those fundamentals, but we haven't really done brand marketing before. So what does Who Gives a Crap look like on TV? Everyone in the business probably had a different idea of what that was at the beginning. And as the managing director and not the marketing director, knowing when to keep my mouth shut and when to give my opinions was also like a personal um, learning with that. For anyone that has or hasn't seen the ad, the ad is primarily bum-focused, which is another sentence you don't say, realize what, you're going to say often. Tell you what, why, yeah. why don't we quickly play the ad now right, so okay. everyone listening and watching can okay. see it. Our planet, our future rests upon your cheeks. Every day, over one million trees are destroyed to make traditional toilet paper with Who Gives a Crap's recycled blue roll, Bums of the World. You can stand, nay, sit down for what you believe in. Uncrack the world with who gives a crap. Now, what we see in this ad, of course, is yeah. a lot of people shaking their bums. It, it, are we going to see a lot more bum shaking in future? Is, that, is this going to become the iconic who gives a crap signature? Well, yeah, I mean, so the, the platform is Uncrap the World and... You know, the whole idea, as we've talked about already, is, you know, we don't want to be preachy. We don't want to guilt people. We want to kind of excite people and get them to be advocates, get them to be activists. And so it's kind of a call to, a call to bums um, to get people to to take that leap. And it's it's hopefully indicative of the type of brand that we are, which is a bit silly, literally tongue in cheek. And so, yes, I think you will see more bums around. Um, the copy is great, by the way. I, I love this. Well, I, I was about to say thank you, and right. I was like, all credit to the creative uh, yeah. and marketing team. Sit down for a good cause. Yeah, you know, exactly. I thought, thought it was genius. Um, well, 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 quick, quick, quick plug for the TV, by the way, because it did very well on System 1, so well done. And it's unusual for startups to, to do that straight out the bat as well. I mean, we, did, we did a research project a couple of years ago called Scaling Up Without Screwing Up. It's amazing how many startups, when they go on TV, don't get it right. Because it, And we worked out it takes on average four years for a startup to get to the average on the database. Yeah. So well done for getting straight in there and doing a good job. Um, you mentioned something there about um, being the managing director, not the marketing yeah. director. I think this is a challenge. Yeah. So um, maybe to end on, tell me what it's been like making that transition from marketing director to managing director because that's quite unusual there's not that many marketing directors do make that move yeah. i think unfortunately because actually it's a great training ground for strategy and vision and understanding your customer but what's that change been like for you when i was like making the decision to leave delivery i knew i kind of had two decision points like did i want to go deeper into the marketing route and you know go down a cmo type route or did i want to move into this general management kind of uh, route and I guess like in that earlier jump I took in my career, I do like trying new things. And I, I guess coming all the way back to the beginning about like always having been interested in business and driving growth in the business, I almost had FOMO on the other functions and like we've always been very interested in. Give me a supply how, chain well, how to get it my all hands comes, on. Yeah, how yes. it all comes together. Um, 
And so just felt like from a learning perspective, it would just be such an amazing opportunity. It's obviously, it's a leap for me. It's also a leap for a business to, um, you know, bring me on and do that, which I'm super grateful for. I think my personal development opportunities are like two opposite things. On the marketing side, it's like, how do I empower the marketing team that I have and also my global peers to do their jobs and not getting too into the day-to-day, but also adding value where I know I can and, Obviously, how we do marketing is super important to the overall UK and Europe business. Then the other side is like, yeah, supply chain, yeah. <laughs> manufacturing toilet paper. You're the one that gets phone um, call when the factories, you know, burn down. <laughs> or the right? supply chain people the also get chain. that. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's a really interesting, you know, leadership development on obviously working with people where they have better functional expertise than I do. And I'm not going to pretend otherwise, and nor am I ever going to overtake what a supply chain person knows but recognizing like where you can still add value because you have that holistic overall um, view, building the team um, and kind of setting the overall vision. But it's, it's really fun because it's two such different dynamics and, and things to, to learn about. So it's been 18 months. It feels, it feels it's one of those classics, like it feels like two minutes and also a lifetime. I, I remember um, actually, so. I, 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 this close I've been to you was doing a private equity takeover of juice business. And the thing that shocked me was I remember the first board meeting and marketing got half an hour at the end. <laughs> I was like, I like sat through the whole thing, you know, talking about legal disputes or factory efficiency or how we're going to fund the business. You know, I, I loved it though because you realise actually, as a marketer, you have so much impact on the business, mm. but you need to understand how the rest of the business works because your decisions affect supply chain. You know, the margin you make, totally. or you know, how happy customers are. You know, it, it's it's really really good. I think for a marketer to see the impact they have on the whole business. One hundred percent. And I've always been like the geeky commercial marketer that had wanted to know, you know, how it all leads back to the PL and all of that kind of stuff. So it's it's fun to. Yeah, to be in this role. Brilliant. Uh, Emily, it's been a real blast talking to you. Thank you, you so too. much for coming thank on. You. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you again for listening to Uncensored CMO. I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I enjoyed making it. If you never want to miss an episode again, please do hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to watch this, head on over to YouTube, hit subscribe over there as well. If you want to contact me, you can do at Twitter, at Uncensored CMO, or I'm on LinkedIn, John Evans. It's been great having you with me. See you next time.